Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. So we're finishing up uh, chapter in Jack Bunfield's book, The Wise Heart, chapter 18. And in this chapter, he's talking about the place for imagination, the place for ritual, and the place for refuge. And it's just another way. You know, there are many ways to talk about spiritual practice. This is just one more way. And the nice thing, the, one of the important reasons to look at practice or think about practice in this way is it inspires us to be active. There's a real tendency in Buddhist mindfulness practice to overemphasize the receptivity, the relaxation, the tranquility, the acceptance. But it's really just half the picture. It's an important half, of course. Maybe stereotypically, there's a tendency in the beginning, appropriately, to emphasize letting go, relaxation, trusting, because so much of our personality is built around doing. I'm going to do this, I'm going to control, I'm going to manipulate, I'm going to push and pull until things start working the way I want them to work in my life. And then we hear about these teachings and we start to cultivate more of a trust and an acceptance and letting go and letting things be. And that's good, but if it goes too far, it's like there's a place in practice that demands or asks for real creativity. We're actually constructing something. Mostly, you know, our constructions are neurotic, and we wanna we wanna let them see. But in learning how to let go, we actually have to construct the supporting causes for letting go. It's not enough just to let go. I mean, if that's all we needed was the instruction to let go, we would have let go a long time ago. But part of letting go is creatively constructing attitudes and circumstances, rituals, ways of thinking about things. We construct that so that it allows the heart, the mind, to more deeply let go. Like we don't know what to let go of. We have to work with our life, our mind, our heart, our body in order to discover, to realize how to let go, what needs letting go. And I think this is ultimately what this chapter is about. Like even the use of imagination, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, you know, we're imagining things all the time. So part of skillful practice, part of ultimately letting go, is to take a hold of this habit of imagining and start using it productively. I mean, one of the ways that we cease imagining in destructive ways is we begin to imagine in positive ways. Like, we can imagine letting go. For example, we can, you know, we can have all kinds of imaginings about me being bad and never been good and never will be good. 
and those certain those kinds of imaginations will have certain consequences. But I could be spending my day imagining letting go, imagining being equanimous, imagining being peaceful. Now, it's not the same as being peaceful and equanimous, but it's a lot more useful than imagining, aiming the mind in a particular direction. I know this is popular these days, this book, The Law of Attraction, but it's a subtle science. when we use our imagination that the actual process of imagining has to be built on some experience. Like if I imagine feeling powerful, I imagine feeling loved. In order to really imagine that, I have to know that to some degree. I have to connect with that experience. I have to find it. You know, there's many habits and conditions in my mind, dispositions to my mind. I have to tune into that particular condition, like the condition to love unconditionally. You know, we can find that. I can imagine being the person who can love unconditionally, who can forgive somebody who's been mean to me. I can imagine that. And actually, imagining that makes it more likely, doesn't it? It's like we grease the wheel by imagining. As we think about a difficult situation coming up, we can imagine now, even though it's two days away, right now we can imagine being in that situation without being tight. Because somehow we know the experience of being in situations that are challenging and being relatively relaxed. Just like we know the experience of being in challenging situations and being tight. So which are we going to imagine? You know, what's actually skillful to sit here imagining, oh yeah, that's going to happen in a few days, and I'm going to be really tight. Oh yeah, that's going to feel really bad being tight. Oh, and I'll probably make all kinds of mistakes being tight in that situation. Or we could imagine the opposite, being relaxed, being clear, being responsive. As we imagine what's possible, or aspire to what's possible, then we can actually make some choices in our life where we're, you know, once we understand that something's possible, that it's actually possible to love unconditionally, it's actually possible to be relaxed, it's actually possible not to get triggered. You know, tomorrow I might be in traffic. Well, I'm going to imagine being relaxed in traffic, seeing the traffic, without being getting tight. And then we can create a ritual, right? We can ritualize it. For example, we could write a little note on a post-it and put it on our steering wheel. That's a ritual, you know, simple one. And then it, ritual, a ritual is really, um, in some concrete way, we're establishing the aspiration. We're using the different structures of life to hold our deeper aspirations, our deeper imagining of what's possible. That's what a ritual does. It's a container that reminds us, that holds what we think is possible. I mean, in a good sense, that's what a ritual is. There are other rituals, of course, that support us remembering how we aren't any good or how everything's bad. 
Right? So we have rituals that are about denial and destruction, and we have rituals that are about revealing, remembering what's really possible. The love, the acceptance, the wisdom, the compassion that's possible. Right? We have those kinds of rituals too. So part of the active side of the spiritual practice is imagining or aspiring to what's actually possible. It's as if we're scanning through all of our experiences where we might have bumped up, might have actually touched something really beautiful, something deep, something real and resonant, a moment of real universal love, a moment of real clarity, deep understanding, right? So it's as if we're mining that experience, and then we, well, if that happened, if that experience was real, as I, as it feels that it was, well, why not now? Why not aspire to live that way, to live from that place all the time? Seems very appropriate to aspire, to live out of our best experiences, our deepest, wisest, most loving experiences, right? Wouldn't any human being wish to sort of fulfill what's possible, the happiness, the wholeness that's possible? Of course. It's amazing how much we uh, underestimate what's possible because, in a way, there's some work involved in this. We actually have to overcome the inertia of our thinking, I can't. I'm this way, you know, there's just a lot of habit energy. So we aspire, we imagine, we institutionalize that imagining, that those aspirations as ritual. We create supports. And the last week, uh, for those who were here, we talked about the way we create rituals. And, and basically we can call on anything. We can use friends, like who we surround ourselves with. That's part of a ritual. When we come together here at Common Ground, it's different than other gatherings you have in your life. There's a different flavor of the people who gather here because we're all gathering here because of a particular intention, the intention to be more mindful, more present in life. And it has a particular flavor for a group of people to gather with that intention has this flavor, you know. If you go afterward to the Hexagon Bar, the people who are gathering there, they have a, there's a different intention that brings people together. And I, it's not about judging good or bad, it's just about noticing. So just the act of coming together on a Wednesday night is a ritual. It can be a very powerful ritual. Some people have been doing it for, oh, close to 20 years now. We've been having the Wednesday night group. Started in 1993. So for a long time. It's one of the first programs at Common Ground, gathering in this way. You know, it's just that we sit together for half an hour, 45 minutes. We, there's usually some talk and then a discussion. Well, that's a ritual. And in a way, that ritual reminds us, you know, of what's possible. That's the whole point of this ritual, isn't it? To remind us of how we might be living this life we have. Because we know, I certainly know, that if I don't have these kinds of programs in my life, or these sorts of rituals in my life, the tendency is to be forgetful. 
And so then when I'm stressed or when I'm reactive or when I'm a little depressed, that starts to be the status quo. It's like I don't expect anything beyond that. Life is troublesome, life is hard. And then the only thing I hope for is just, you know, periodic pleasant distractions. You know, a good TV show once in a while, good this or good that, to get a little escape from the basic drudgery of life. And that's, life sort of falls down to those just getting by. So the ritual holds the aspiration, brings us back to the aspiration, but there's the third step, the third active step, actually the most important. In this chapter, Jack Parkfield refers to it as refuge. But I think we could call it insight, too. I mean, the whole point of having, imagining our deepest aspiration and ritualizing it, finding ways to structure our life so we remember it over and over again, come back to it over and over again, is to then actually take a step toward that experience. So it's not just an imagination, not just an empty ritual, but the imagination and the form, the ritual, leads to an actual experience where we touch the experience of universal love, for example, metta. We call it in Pali, the word for loving kindness. Or we touch or open to experience of clarity beyond our usual clarity, insight. We see what we're not seeing. We open in a way that we don't normally open. That's when the imagination and the ritual deliver. That's the whole point of imagining and ritualizing our life is to go beyond the ordinary. You know, the ordinary confusion, the ordinary reactivity, the ordinary self-centered, oppressive states of mind that we have. And so, in terms of refuge, it's, it's really pointing to, um, you know, the ritual, like when we have a ritual of sitting, right? Sitting meditation is a very obvious ritual. In Buddhism, you know, other rituals, especially in Asia, bowing. Most traditional Buddhist forms, bowing is a big deal. It's a big ritual. And it's the idea of humility, right? So it starts with imagine this important imagination or even aspiration, but this idea that maybe I don't know everything. <laughs> maybe what I think is just a, just a little tip of the iceberg and there's a lot I don't know. And you see, this is an important first step to learning. We have to know that we don't know. If we think we already know, it's not easy to learn. But if we know that we don't know, it's actually easy to learn. So we have that imagination where we imagine, oh my God, maybe I don't know everything. Maybe I'm just a beginner. Maybe there's, there's ways of being that are available that I can't even imagine. Right? That's an imagination. We can imagine that. Aspire to become what we can't even imagine. But be free in a way we can't imagine. Be happy be loving, be wise in a way we can't even imagine clearly. And then, so that we might want to ritualize that by bowing down, by putting our forehead on the ground, right? As a way of acknowledging, you know, we're creating a ritual or a form that reminds us, I'm just a beginner. I really want to approach life from this beginner's mind, this open place, 
of learning, not from an arrogant place, I already know everything there is to know. So I'm going to ritualize it, you know. I'm going to put my forehead down on the floor. <coughs> and maybe I'll do it in front of an altar that is the symbol for what might be possible. Right? So you could do that. That makes sense that people would do that. Put their head down. And then, but the point is, that could be just an empty gesture we do because, you know, for relatively superficial reasons. But the idea is to, that for that ritual to be um, something that activates an opening in the mind or a learning in the mind, an insight in the mind. So when we remember that the ritual is about humility, about letting go of arrogance, and then we activate it by, you know, doing the ritual, engaging the ritual, then it's a, we can, in a moment, we can really drop the arrogance, drop the certainty, and open to a place of simplicity or innocence or open-mindedness for a moment. And that's what we call refuge. Then what we discover is, oh, this state of mind or this view or perspective, this feels right. This feels so much more wholesome. It's like we don't realize what a load being arrogant is until we put it down. It just feels so right to put that down. I'm sure if we looked hard enough, most of us would find moments in our life where we were arrogant and then something popped that. Some, you know, buddy said something or we saw, saw a mistake in some way or but and although it might initially really smart that embarrassment, but after a while it might actually feel good. The sense of knowing that we don't know. Like now we don't have to spend all the psychic energy covering up with the idea that I think I do know. You know, that's a lot of work involved in pretending that we do know. And there's a lot of ease and knowing that we don't know. You know, it's much less to have to defend when we know that we don't know or project. I was telling somebody the other day, to guess who, but uh, I uh, uh, was working in Washington, D.C. after college at a management consulting firm and then got interested in meditation and practice and realized, oh, Boy, I was working a lot of hours. It was a high-stressed job. But, oh, I need a different career if I'm going to do this. And I had originally taken the job to help pay off my school loans. And uh, so I thought, oh, what would be easy? And it occurred to me, oh, I'll be, a, I'll be an elementary school teacher. <laughs> it shows you how naive I was. <laughs> that would be easy, and I'll have my summers free. I can do a lot of practice in the summers. And uh, so I... I got into, uh, they had a one-year, actually not even a full year, it was like a nine-month program for people who had no background in education at UC Berkeley. In nine months, you get your license. <laughs> so I, I went to UC Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley, and I had time because I, I left my management consulting job in January and school didn't start until like early September or something. So I bought a van and drove to Taos, New Mexico, and uh, wanted a job and went there. There's a ski resort up in the mountains in Taos, some of you might know, a beautiful place. 
and walked in the door and said, I'm looking for a job. I said, well, we need a bartender. <laughs> I spent one afternoon at the faculty club where I went to college, you know, tending bar, mostly pouring wine and beer. And uh, one afternoon, and I said, oh, I bartend. <laughs> you know, and went into town. Luckily, there was a bookstore in town. And got books that have actually nothing to do with real bartending, you know, but like books on making cocktails and things like that. And studied all night, you know, because the next day I was starting. And, you know, for a while, for many weeks, I had to pretend that I knew when I knew that I didn't know. And it was, it's like, it's so terrible to have to project something that's false. It's really yucky. And finally, after, after I knew I wasn't going to get fired, I confessed to the bar manager that I didn't know anything. <laughs> Anytime someone asked me for a drink, I'd pretend like we were out of something, and I'd walk to the back room, <laughs> look through the book, and then eventually I'd look through my notes, and I'd say, you know, every once in a while I could ask questions of people, and I'd say, well, I do it this way, but how do you do it? <laughs> and they'd tell me the right way to do it. I'd make a note. But just an example of how much suffering it is when we're in positions of having to pretend. And actually, this is not that uncommon, where we create images for ourselves that aren't exactly true or aren't true at all. And then, because we projected that image, every time we're with those people, we have to pretend that it's that way. So rituals can help us with all of the important spiritual qualities, like humility, like fearlessness. Think about how many rituals we can create around fearlessness. And then the idea is to actually touch the experience of fearlessness over and over again, to use the imagination and the ritual to touch it. You know, in a way, like, uh, I guess it's today, it's the leap day, right? And <laughs> shows how, how dense I am. Like, I was kept seeing these articles about people jumping. And I'd never got, like, what, why would they make that the ritual for February 29th? I didn't get it. And then I realized, oh, yeah, leap year. I, it's, it's, it's a stupid pun. <laughs> it was too obvious for me. <laughs> so people ritualize everything. We might as well ritualize what's actually important. You know, like uh, the values we really care about, and and set up forms in our life that take us into experiencing those beautiful qualities that we aspire to. If we don't actively get involved in uh, opening, touching these places, we don't go. We don't really transform the mind. We end up having the mind we had when we were 18 years old when we're dying at 75 or 82 or whatever it's going to be. Now that's a frightening thought. Not to, to have lived a life but not transform the mind, not really learned anything of value. I mean, of course, we'll learn some things. We know how to use electronic devices. We didn't know how to use when we were 18. But, you know, what's a real value that we've learned that's really going to help us when we're dying, or help us when we're around somebody who's dying, or help us when the world falls apart, or helps us when something really beautiful happens to us. 
helps us be present with all of that. So I'll take a few minutes, I'll share the three Buddhist refuges. And again, they're just, it's a, both a way of imagining life, these three refuges that are traditional in Buddhism. It's a way of ritualizing what's of real value in life. And then hopefully, these, this form, this habit, this Buddhist habit, is a way of actually supporting insight into what's possible for the mind, for the heart. That's the idea. Otherwise, it becomes an empty spiritual religious gesture, like a lot of us, a lot of people, find in a lot of established religion. Buddhism, no different than the others in that regard. You know, so many institutionalized religions are institutionalized, you know, and because of that, aren't of real value. They might be nice social organizations. Often they can be, and often they can be very unhealthy social organizations. <coughs> but it, what's really important is that these forms of imagination and ritual deliver human beings to the place of insight, deep spiritual learning. That's what insight means. So in Buddhism, we take refuge in the Buddha. That's the sort of symbol. We're taking refuge in this teacher that lived 2,500 years ago, and we're taking refuge in what he symbolizes. And the Buddha was very articulate, you know, especially as he got older and was closer to death, and his followers understood he was close to death, and they began to worry that he was going to be gone. And he said to them, this is, you know, just a paraphrase, but he said to them, When you see the Dharma, the teachings, when you understand the teachings, you see the Buddha. You don't need me, you need the Buddha. And this, these teachings are not only here as teachings, but they're alive in these people who have realized these teachings. So it lives in the teachings and it lives in the people that have practiced these teachings and have realized the fruit of these teachings. Don't worry about me or this body or this particular life. That's not your refuge. He was very clear about this. And also near the time of his death, he talked about you need to take your own practice, your own life as practice, as your refuge, your island, your life. Nothing else. So we have to make these rituals our own. They have to be, uh, they have to work for us. And we have to keep at it until they do work for us. We have to become independent so that we keep working. So if you decide to take up refuge as a formal practice where every day or once a month or at the center formally as a community every quarter, we take refuge together. Sunday morning, 10.30, next time is uh, March 25th. We do it around the equinoxes and solstices. And so we take refuge in the Buddha and we, we do that whole from the gross to the subtle. So in the gross level it's this guy who lived 2,500 years ago who was deeply wise, had a powerful insight that he could articulate in a way that was very useful for many, has been very useful for many people. 
men and women through the centuries. We take refuge in what's possible for us, because the Buddha was a human being. We're human beings. If he did this, we can do this. In fact, what makes Buddhism, what makes this a path, is when the Buddha articulated his own insight in a way, at the time, that other people could get it. That was his first talk, where he shared to some other people, and then those people started to have the same insight, same understanding, liberating understanding that he did. So this is the point. Now we need to just activate that same cycle. You know, we use the Buddha. We even make statues. Actually, the statues came later when Greek culture mixed with North Indian culture, and they had a lot of statues in Greek culture. So they started making statues of the Buddha before the symbol they used were footprints. And maybe you've noticed the beautiful sign that uh, um, Cynthia Schiller made uh, for us, and she has the footprints. Well, that's a traditional image, the footprints of the Buddha, because it symbolizes a path to, to follow, that we're following something that somebody else, other people have done. And now, many, 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 many people have done. So this is not, we're not alone in walking this path. But, and the other symbol, traditional symbol, is the eight-spoked eight wheel. So the wheel, like this, these teachings, this way of practicing, is something in motion. There are people doing it, getting the results. We can do it. We'll get the results. It really points to the idea of cause and effect. If we put this wheel, this practice in motion, you're going to go somewhere with it. Something's going to happen. So we have the Buddha. It represents uh, the, the teacher. But it, in a deeper way, it represents the liberated mind. And the easiest way to begin to understand this is to recognize the mind that is already free now, not free later when we're perfect or when we've been really good and sad every day for a long time. Then we have this liberated mind. But the practice is really about uncovering what's already true. We're uncovering a natural, organic freedom. And moments of awareness really help us understand this freedom. Here's a, an image that's used quite a bit in the tradition. is the image of a mirror. And when, when we have a mirror, it doesn't matter what you do in front of the mirror. The mirror might reflect really disgusting things, or the mirror could reflect really beautiful things that the mirror isn't affected by what it's reflecting. And this is, it's not a perfect simile, but it's a useful simile. There's something about the heart or mind. We can be in the middle of something really terrible, or we can be in the middle of something really beautiful. That there's a quality of the mind or heart that remains unaffected, a peaceful, still, empty, empty of drama center for the heart that we can uncover and we can learn to take refuge in. This is what we mean by the Buddha. We're discovering, we're realizing this heart, not the activity of the heart, not the emotions that are moving through or the thoughts that are moving through the heart, but you could say the space of the mind or the space of the heart. 
that's unaffected by what comes and goes. So this is one of this is the more subtle aspect of what the Buddha represents. But this is all still on the level of imagination and ritual. And the actual experience is in a moment like this moment to realize this mind here and now. Because it isn't anywhere else. And that's what refuge means. Refuge means actually taking refuge in what's real and true now and getting the benefit of that. And what's the benefit? Well, faith is the benefit. It's like, oh, there is actually something to trust in life, something to take refuge in. We're not just cut adrift, pushed around by random forces, which is sometimes what we it feels like or we think. So refuge is pointing to the actual experience where the heart sees something, realizes something, and then is healed or freed in that experience because of that experience. And the same with the second refuge. So traditionally it's Dhamma or Dharma. Dharma is a Sanskrit word and Dhamma is the Pali equivalent. Pali and Sanskrit are words or languages rather spoken in ancient India and are the scriptural languages for Buddhism. Sanskrit for the Mahayana traditions and Pali, the Theravada traditions of Buddhism. You don't need to remember this, but but this word now often doesn't get translated, so it's a good word to recognize, Dhamma or Dharma. And it can, you know, on the surface level, it points to the teachings of the Buddha because the teachings are pointing the mind to the way it is. So symbolically, it's the teachings. More subtly, it's this concept, the way it is. Not the way we imagine it is, not the way we want it to be, not the way we're afraid of it is, but the way that we actually experience the body and mind right now. So, like I said, this refuge, these three things, the Buddha, the Dharma, and I'll talk about the Sangha in a moment, these three things are pointing to something that's true now. Like to be a refuge, we have to have insight from our experience right now. So it's a dynamic, a practice dynamic, not just a concept. So the Buddha is that quiet, still, clear mind that's unaffected by what comes and goes. But intimate, right in the middle, but unaffected at the same time. Thomas Merton, who got interested in Buddhism near the end of his life, he was a famous Christian Catholic monk and a mystic in the 60s. He died an early death in a strange way. He got electrocuted in a stepping out of a shower, I think, in Bangkok. He was there for some religious conference, east-west dialogue between Christians and Buddhists and maybe some other faith traditions or religious traditions. And anyway, near the end of his life, he started studying uh, and looking at the relationship between Christian mysticism and Buddhism. And uh, I think it was Thomas Merton who had this phrase, caring without caring, which is a nice way. And I, I think maybe it's from a T.S. Eliot poem. I don't know, does anybody, does that ring a bell? Or a similar line. Anyway, I remember reading it in one of Thomas Merton's books, caring without caring, because the mind is intimate, but it's not caught with what it's aware of. And this is really talking about Buddha knowing Dhamma, the mind that knows, the heart that knows, knowing the way it is. 
So we take refuge in both. We take refuge in the mind that knows, but we also take refuge in the way it actually is now. That way, Buddha doesn't get indifferent, you know, like the witness, the observer, but the observer is way out there, perfect, not soiled by the messiness of the world. But in Buddhism, the practice is the Buddha knowing the way it is, the connected, being connected. So we, t- we practice taking refuge in the way it is, the body-mind experience here and now. And what do we see? Well, we see all kinds of things. The more we practice connecting, opening, being mindful, we start to see how everything is alive with change. And it's unsatisfying. It doesn't mean it's bad. Sensations of the body aren't in any way bad. But they're not going to lead to happiness. Grasping the sensations, even pleasant sensations of our body, doesn't lead to any lasting happiness. Grasping pleasant sounds, (coughs) pleasant sights, pleasant thought, not grasping any of Dhamma the way it is doesn't lead to happiness because Dhamma is always changing. So the mind that knows, in a sense, doesn't change. In Buddhism we call it the unconditioned. Because if it's changing, then it's Dhamma. It's something that's being known, right? The mind that knows, knowing the way it is, that's our practice. And what comes out of that is Sangha. That's the third refuge. Sangha represents, I mean, traditionally, the symbol of Sangha is the monastic community of monks and nuns. They represent, I mean, not necessarily in reality always. Certainly there are some monks and nuns that actually represent the beautiful qualities of humanity, kindness, wisdom, renunciation, like simple lives, calm, peaceful lives. So Sangha represents more generally a spiritual community or even more specifically and importantly they, it represents the beautiful qualities that come out of Buddha knowing Dhamma when that clear mind knows things as they actually are, opens to life as it actually is, then naturally, unavoidably what comes forth is tenderness. You can't have a moment of real mindfulness without tenderness and kindness being there. You can't have a moment of real mindfulness without fearlessness being there, without truthfulness being there, without integrity being there, without any of you know the commonsensical, wholesome qualities of a human mind being there. They're all there in a moment of deep intimacy with the way that it is. So we take refuge in all three of those. So when you do it, like let's say, like I do it every day in the morning, right at the beginning of my first sit, I just bring, usually silently, unless I'm alone, I'll just do it in my mind. I take refuge in the Buddha. And then I think about what that means. I I might think about the Buddha and how grateful I am for these teachings and for his example and what it represents for me. And then, but I don't stop there. And then I, as I'm contemplating taking refuge in the Buddha, I look directly at the mind that knows right now. I look at that clear, uninhibited seeing or knowing, awareness. The sort of background, pure presence. It's here already. I mean, there's a lot of other things happening. I'm not saying it's everything. 
that behind everything, like the space of the mind, is this simple, pure awareness. And I take refuge in it. And I've been practicing intuiting it and taking refuge in it a long time. So it's relatively it's getting easier to immediately notice it. Even while I'm talking, I can be somewhat awake to this quality of mind. And it's very reassuring because it provides a sense of stillness and calm even in the midst of having a terrible argument with my wife or something, you know, to still feel safe, like it's a refuge, even when things are messy and confusing. It's really useful. Because we don't go off the deep end. It keeps us coming back and uh, being reflective, not just lost in our reactivity. And then I say I take refuge in Dhamma, the way it is. And I think about, you know, all my teachings, all my ways of remembering to be present, like feeling my hands touching or feeling the breath coming in, feeling the breath going out, being aware of sound. These are all parts of the ritual of remembering Dhamma. It's just like these concrete ways of connecting with the present moment, lifting my foot, placing my foot right, in walking meditation. So we have all kinds of ways of remembering Dhamma the way it is. But we want to go beyond just the surface, like a feeling the hands touching, and I want to realize what is the essence of this experience of my hands touching. You know, and the mind becomes more interested, more sensitive, more subtle, and I see how that experience—it's just a play of energy, right? It's—it's it's not a thing. Dhamma, the way it is, isn't a thing. My hands touching—that's a concept. But the actual experience is alive with change. It's very ephemeral. Whatever aspect of Dhamma we open to, we see it's alive with change. It's not worthy of grasping. It's not even personal. Even things we would assume in a conventional sense are personal, like my hands touching each other or my breath coming in. When we actually look carefully at it as a present moment experience, there's nothing personal in it. It doesn't feel personal when we're honestly looking at it, opening to it. It's just what it is. It's just the sensations, just that ephemeral play of sensation, just the sound, which is also ephemeral, just the thought, which is also ephemeral. It's just what it is, nothing more, nothing less. And this Buddha knowing Dhamma, then I take refuge in Sangha, and I'm already, you know, if I'm doing the refuge appropriately, really reflectively, reflecting on my actual experience as I'm doing it, not just an empty gesture or ritual, then already my heart's tenderized. I already notice that this heart cares in a beautiful way. It cares about my, my life, cares about everything. Already I'm noticing that my mind is clear and fearless, present, stable all the wholesome, beautiful qualities that we like to see in ourselves and see in others. So this is how we activate a ritual, and it becomes an, then a refuge. The ritual delivers the good, right? And we feel safe. That's why we want ritual. That's why we want to use our imagination. We want to create safety and real spiritual beauty in our lives as opposed to just being swept along by the different cultural habits of consumption and, you know, racism, <laughs> nationalism. 
sexism, all the different isms that we bind ourselves with because we're being swept along by our cultures, our communities. So I'll leave it here. We have about 11 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from people. I'm sure in different ways you found ways to use your imagination and ritualize and touch insight, open to deeper truths in your life, made them real for yourself, or any questions you might have. So what comes to mind? Yeah. Yeah. Andrea, would you shut the ventilation switch at the top one above the thermostat? Uh, no, above the thermostat. Yeah, that one. Thanks. Be able to hear each other better. Yeah. No, it's a really good question. And the answer to that question, it really has to be insight. Conceptually, when we talk about the Buddha, it's in the world of causes and conditions, things coming and going. But the experience, you know, as we begin to intuit, even though it can't be grasped, because if it can be grasped, then it is in the world of causes and conditions. So you're really asking about the nature of the Buddha. And every way we conceptualize it, or ritualize it, or imagine it, it's still in the world of causes and conditions. It's still Dhamma, in a sense. Right? So our thoughts about the Buddha is Dhamma, because that's just a thought that's being known. It's the way it is. I'm thinking about the Buddha. That's the way it is. Right? So it's in this world of Dhamma, and Dhamma is always part, the aspect of Dhamma is that it's always coming and going. It's ephemeral. But in doing the practice, you know, which is just being mindful, being attentive, being honest and clear and relaxed, the mind begins to intuit something. It's like this image, another image that's used, or one image I gave already, the mirror, right? Another image that's used a lot that I find helpful is the using the image of space. Like we can be in this room for a long time. You can come to this room every Wednesday evening for decades, and you may never notice the space of the room. You may notice the people in the room. You may notice the cushions on the floor, you may notice the temperature, you may notice the quality of the sound, you know, you may notice the color of the paint, you might notice the thoughts you're having when you're in the room. But how many times do we actually notice there's space here? That all of these things I've just mentioned are happening here in the space. So in the same way, I can't actually touch the space of this room. I can talk about it, but that's the talking about it, those words, that's not the space, right? But, but would anybody deny that there's not space because I can't grab it? No, we all know there's space here. And it's similarly with the unconditioned. It's so obvious, it's so, in a sense, omnipresent, but it, it isn't graspable. It's like the space that allows Dhamma, the way it is, to move, to come and go, to express itself. 
And so the awakening, in a sense, it's an intuitive awakening, not an awakening in the sense of, oh, I got it now, I got the Buddha here. We can never grasp the Buddha, because then it's Dhamma, and it's not trustworthy, it's not a refuge. Dhamma is a refuge because Dhamma teaches us to let go, right? So that's why it's an important teacher. We take refuge in the Dhamma because it's so ephemeral that ultimately the heart just stops grasping. The more the heart stops grasping, the more the heart intuits Buddha, the empty, pure nature of the mind. But there's got to be the dynamic between the two, between the Dhamma and the Buddha. They both reveal each other. It's like the clarity of mind is what sees how ephemeral Buddha, uh, the Dhamma, the way it is, experiences. It's so ephemeral. But our conventional mind doesn't see it. But when the mind is more still and empty of drama, self-centered drama, then it's relatively easy to notice how ephemeral and impersonal experience is. And the heart lets go more and more. As it lets go, it intuits, it trusts, it takes refuge in that empty, pure, liberated mind we call the Buddha. Other thoughts come to mind? Yeah, let's keep. Yeah, except uh, when we're having a hard time being connected, being present, then we can imagine it would be really good to be present. That's an imagining. To see, that imagining helps. If I imagine I'm never going to be good at this thing, being present, you know, that imagining won't help. So. The thing about practice is we need to use delusion to turn the mind toward things as they are. So delusion is thinking about things in a way, or thinking about things and then uh, not really understanding what we're doing. But as as we're doing this skillfully, as we're imagining skillfully, it's really coming out of humility. You know, we realize that we're not connected. So I'm deluded, and now I know I'm deluded. And in being deluded, knowing that I'm deluded, I'm going to imagine not being deluded. Right? And that's going to inspire me to engage a ritual, going to common ground and every morning and sitting for 30 minutes or something, or sitting in my apartment for 30 minutes or an hour every morning. So that imagining leads us to an activity, and the activity can support being real, you know, being present, being mindful, not lost in construction. So, in a sense, you're right that there are constructions that lead to more constructions, and there are constructions that lead to going beyond constructions. And as long as we're in the world of constructions, we should be using constructing constructions that lead to going beyond them. As one teacher I had, one of the teachers I had when I was practicing in Burma, said. Because, you know, the second part of the Noble Eightfold Path is right thought or right intention. And he said, you know, the only right thoughts, the only thoughts worth having are thoughts that direct the mind toward awareness, toward mindfulness. So those are, there are useful thoughts, and probably more than just those thoughts. 
you know, thoughts of restraint. Like, do I really want to be doing this? Is this really right? That's a wholesome thought to have. It's still a construction of the mind. But if it actually gets us to stop hurting somebody and being unskillful, it's a useful thought, a protecting thought. Time for maybe one more comment, if anybody else has a thought. Ideally, you know, when the practice is um, alive, humming along, and we start to think about the future, then the mind would understand, oh, this is thinking, this is thinking about the future, it's like this, thinking about the future is being known. And then the mind would also, so that's the content of the mental activity, and then maybe if there's a particular emotional tone going with the content of thinking about the future. So the mind would know the content and not be confused by it. Meaning, not confused by it means that the mind knows that this is content in the mind now. And then the mind would also know the tone. Oh, there's anxiety about the future, you know, and there's anxiety right here and now, and it feels like this. This is anxiety being known, and it feels like this. And then it would even know in a more direct way, this anxiety hurts. It's tight. It hurts like this. So the mind would see, know, the pain of the emotion associated with the content. And it's a way of like tracing from, the content is actually the grossest thing, the densest thing, the most obvious thing. And the actual pain in the mind or heart is the most important, but often the most subtle thing. And this is what's really important. So this is what we'd want to know. Is there any anxiety, any tightness, any anticipation, any pain associated with this mental content? this movement of thought in the mind. We'd want to know all of that and know that all of that is being known or happening now. Then there's not delusion. But if we're missing any of that, then there's some delusion going on and there's repercussions. And we need to leave it here. I wanted to just mention, as I often do at the last Wednesday of the month, that uh, the center operates on this principle of dana. Some of you know about this and it's more than just a way of the center operating. It's really a, a whole life practice. I find one of the most beautiful and challenging. So Donna usually gets translated as generosity. And the invitation is, in all places in our life, and, but also particularly at Common Ground, that we explore how to freely receive and freely give in life. So uh, when we first started Common Ground, we decided that uh, the operation of the center should be based on this principle. So we don't have suggested donations. We don't have any fees for any of the programs. And the idea is that we would practice, all the leaders, uh, volunteers, we all practice doing everything freely, giving it away freely. So when you show up to take a class on a Wednesday night, it's arriving as a free gift to all of us. From everybody who ever did whatever they did before, this is why we get this freely tonight. All, all the way back to the Buddha teaching and being passed on by women and men through the centuries. These teachings arise freely. 
the building and all the work the community has done in the past to make this building what it is. It all lands in our lap as a free gift. And the idea is to let it be a cause for happiness. Because if it's truly a free gift, no strings attached, that's really nice to get something that's wholesome as a free gift. We should be really grateful. Just like we'd be grateful if we had a beautiful spring day. You know, this is a beautiful thing. And we should be grateful. It should make us happy. And then if you decide to contribute your time or contribute money to help pay for the building and pay for the office staff and support the teachers and other expenses, then that's a free gift because this was given freely, no strings attached. You're not giving because you received. You're giving because you want to give. So you have to practice giving freely because it makes you happy because you want to give. And so that's also the practice. And then notice, if you give too much, then it won't feel good because it's coming from guilt or whatever reason. You're not taking care of your other needs in your life. It won't feel good if you give too much, too much time, too much money. If you don't give enough, it won't feel good either. It won't feel unbalanced, all things being equal. So you have to experiment of what makes you happy. What way of contributing makes you happy? And you can use common ground to develop the skill and then take it everywhere. You can even do this with your paid job, even though they're paying you. In a sense, practice receiving the paycheck as a free gift. Great, amazing, they paid me, you know? And when you're there doing your job, give it as a free gift. Do it freely because it makes you happy. Why not make your work a cause for happiness? There's no reason not to, right? I mean, it may be hard work to make your work happiness, but why not do that work to make everything we do a cause for happiness? We're doing it because it makes me happy, not because my wife will leave me if I don't do it. But I'm going to do it because it makes me happy. And when she does something, I'm going to receive it as a free gift. I'm not going to assume it's some business relationship. She's being nice to me because she wants me to be nice to her. That's, you know, that's just leads to... I mean, it, it can work. Business relationships can work, but they're not necessarily pleasant, right? And they don't necessarily um, lead to freedom. So anyway, if you ever have questions about how the center operates, any way works. You know, some people put themselves in quarterly donations. You know, you can go to the website and have a certain amount taken out of your credit card every month or organize that through your bank where they send us a check every month or every quarter or once a year. Or you could just put some money in the bowl when you want. The only thing to keep in mind is when we have guest teachers or if you take a class from like our Nancy or yoga teacher, then uh, for the other program teachers, we support them according to the donations that come when they're teaching. So just keep that in mind. And if you don't want to leave a donation then but want to do it later, then let us know that you want some of that and how much of that to go for that particular class that you took a week ago or something like that. But otherwise, you can... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.